Welcome to Capitalist Adventures, where we hope to shed light on the diverse puzzle pieces that make up the VC community. My name is Akash, and this is my co-host, Jonathan. Thanks, Akash. And we are back with another amazing episode. This week, I'm really, really excited to kick off uh, today's conversation with my buddy, Aditya Dinmarti from Bessemer Venture Partners. So, Aditya is what I would consider an encyclopedia of SaaS and fintech knowledge. We've been riffing about these topics for a little while now, uh, and I believe, Aditya, that your former colleague, Tali, who has now gone on to start her own venture fund, she was the person who initially introduced us. So I'm really grateful for that. We have regular catch-ups. We've had some great conversations over the years. So I am really honored to welcome you to the podcast, Aditya. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. And, and Jonathan, as I was thinking about this podcast, it actually came to mind that Tali was the one uh, who introduced us. I was actually thinking today morning, like, how do I know Jonathan? And then it came to me that it was Tali that made the introduction before she moved on to do great things. Absolutely. It's a small world, a pretty tight community. And this is what venture is all about, meeting other great people. But speaking of the venture community, let's dive right in and talk about your career journey. From what I understand, you studied economics and entrepreneurship at Northwestern. Then you did brief stints at Spot Hero and McKinsey before joining Bessemer Venture Partners or BVP for short in 2020. That's not a typical career journey. It sounds like you were able to get into BVP quite early. So walk me through that journey, step by step, and let, let the audience know, why did you end up joining Bessemer? So my journey actually began in India. So I was born and raised in India, um, in a city called Pune, which is not too far away from Mumbai, and eventually moved to the States from undergrad in 2016. And the biggest goal for me when I came to the U.S. was obviously doing well in college, but the second goal was trying to find an internship here really early on. I was really intrigued by the work culture in the U.S. and the best way to get real exposure to that was finding an internship. So I was hell-bent on not going back to India my first summer and trying to work here. And through that process, landed up at a company called Spot Hero, which is a parking marketplace company in Chicago. And when I joined them, they were at the Series B stage, but eventually raising their Series C. And... While I was doing my job there, one of the, the tasks that came up was, hey, let's prepare this deck because we want to raise money. And that seemed extremely novel to me, something I had not experienced before. And that sort of led to the curiosity of finding out about VC and, and led me to understand this world of VC through that one conversation I had with, with one person at, at Spot Hero. But fast forward, always VC was an option. But as you both probably know, that opportunities for younger people to join VC firms is limited. So I again went back to Spot Hero my second summer, but at the same time on the side, I was actually running Northwestern's first and only VC club at the undergrad level. And the genesis of the club was to try and find more like-minded people like myself who were freshmen or sophomore in college and who were interested in VC. And the pitch for Rock Venture, which is the club, was us reaching out to different VCs and asking them for ad hoc projects, something we would do for them for free. But in return, we expected them to give us some exposure into their daily lives, understand how they're going about things. I tried getting into VC my junior summer. Obviously, things didn't work out. So went and did consulting at McKinsey. And at McKinsey, I had some, some sort of philosophical reckoning and then walk you through that reckoning. At a high level, I realized that consulting firms were helping incumbents for the most part, whether it's larger insurance companies, larger tech companies, larger auto companies, stay relevant. 
And that usually happened because these larger companies were facing pressure from younger companies. So the goal for me or the question rather for me was, do I work in consulting and help incumbents stay relevant or do I jump out of consulting into this startup ecosystem, whether as an employee at a younger startup or as a VC and help these younger companies beat these incumbents? It was like a philosophical question I had at that point. And eventually decided that probably joining the startup ecosystem was the right thing. The question then was, do I join a younger startup or do I start my own company or do I join a VC? And obviously starting my own company wasn't an option. I didn't have a great idea then. Joining a really early stage startup was pretty risky for me as a 21 year old. Um, Didn't know how to vet those companies Didn't know what startup is good with two or three people in them, what business models actually work. So I felt the safest option for me would be to join a VC. Not only safest option, it would also help me understand how to evaluate startups eventually when I want to join one of them. So that was like my my career journey in, in a few minutes. Aditya, that's fantastic. And at this point, I wanted to interrupt you and ask you why VC? Because this is an interesting trend that we're noticing lately. When you think about it, if when Jonathan and I went to undergrad, VC was not a career option. VC had not was not a developed ecosystem as yet, open enough to allow outsiders to enter the 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 space. So, how did you arrive at this unique solution or unique market as 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 a job that you want to take up right after your undergrad? Because that's an interesting trajectory that many youngsters today are taking. So talk us through your decision-making process and why VC was going to be your career option. And what made you feel that this is going to be something that you could do for the next five to 10 years? So as I mentioned, while I was evaluating consulting versus the startup ecosystem, obviously didn't want to work to help the incumbents stay relevant, obviously wanted to join the newer entrants and help them grow. And the question, as I said, was, do I join a startup? Do I start my own company or do I join VC? I and mean, obviously the first two options weren't viable for me then. And hence VC was the only viable option for me to enter that ecosystem. Part two was some people say, hey, joining VC pretty early closes some doors, but I feel that it's pretty easy to jump between different roles within the ecosystem itself. So from a VC to a younger startup, from a younger startup to forming your own company, vice versa. And I felt that that flexibility will allow me to be in this ecosystem for long. Maybe not as a VC 10 or 15 years from now, maybe as a founder or maybe as an early employee at an upcoming startup. But I felt that it's pretty easy to move between these different things. And it was not me feeling about it. I just seen different people do it. And my conversations with them helped reaffirm that thesis, that it's pretty easy to move between different entities within the ecosystem itself. You know what, Aditya, I've heard people tell me the same thing, that if you join a VC fund too early in your career, it significantly limits and narrows the scope of what you can do in your career in the future. And like you, I think I largely disagree with that, but it really also largely depends on what kind of VC you end up joining early in your career, right? If you start your career off super specialized and in a very narrow sector or very narrow space, then perhaps the options for what you can do afterwards are limiting. But if you're like us and you're generalists and you work for industry agnostic funds, then you have the opportunity to go very wide in scope, stage and sector and develop a lot of skill sets that are relevant to many different companies in many different areas. And that I think can actually be very helpful to your career. At the end of the day, a lot of companies need generalists, whether that's on the operations side, on the growth and strategy side, even salespeople. It can be a very powerful 
skill set to have. And of course, you look at product managers and people in similar roles. They also require a wide breadth of experiences and knowledge as well to be successful. But it's a great point you bring up there. So just to summarize a little bit, from what it sounds like, for you, Aditya, you know, when you went early career VC, the key was hustle and to take initiative. You started your own VC club at Northwestern. You reached out to a bunch of investors to help them with deal sourcing and such. And in return, you got to learn from these folks as well. So it sounds to me like those are keys to being able to succeed early on in your career in VC. Would you say for other potential prospective early VCs that want to break into the space that they need to have a similar mindset uh, or approach? Or are there any other tidbits of knowledge or wisdom or advice that you would give folks who are thinking about an early career in VC? Yeah, Jonathan, you summarize it pretty well. I'll just add one more thing that I think having a perspective or having a strong opinion about things is important. I don't say that negatively. I say that positively. Many younger people ask me, what is what are the few key traits that someone needs? And in addition to whatever you mentioned, I always tell them, have a strong perspective on a certain topic or topics within, within the startup ecosystem, whether it's a trend you're following, why that trend is important, how that trend affects the world, what is the impact it's going to have, and which are the few key players or startups that are actually taking advantage of that trend? And why is there a why now to invest in those startups? So obviously hustling is important. Building a network is important. Having a good track record is important within the internships you have had. And in addition to that, having a strong perspective on certain topics within technology is important. Speaking of perspective, I read somewhere, and it may have been on your blog, that the last three generations of your family were doctors. And so the perspective from them was probably let's pressure Aditya into also walking into the medical field. So was there a lot of pressure on you growing up to pursue medicine? And how did your family react when you ended up walking down the business and then BC path? I wouldn't say there was pressure. There was an expectation that I do pursue what my family members have done. And in some way, I actually bought into that expectation. So for some time in India, I was actually preparing to be a doctor. The way it works in India, Akash probably might know this, is there's one entrance exam And if you get a good score in that exam, you get placed in different medical colleges. So basically, high schoolers are preparing for that one exam. Imagine an SAT, but the the SAT is the only thing that's required to get into college. So you don't have an essay, you don't have school grades that are required, you don't have the common app, nothing of that sort. There's one exam that determines which future college you go to. So for some time in India, I was actually preparing for that exam and quite soon realized that medicine, although might be interesting, there's a slight chance that I might not like it when I join college in India. And the way universities are structured is that you enter with a major. And if you want to change it, you have to go back and start all over again. It's not like the US where you have credits and credits add up to you graduating with a certain degree and you can mix and match and eventually decide which major you want to pursue. So I was terrified at the fact that if I don't like medicine, I would have to leave it and start all over again. And that's when I told my parents that I need some more flexibility and a liberal arts education would be the right next step. Well, I could pursue medicine if I like it, but I can also pursue something else if medicine doesn't. And when they heard that option, obviously they were a bit distraught that you know we had these expectations and stuff, but very quickly realized that that's the right thing for me in that situation where I need that flexibility. I would not want to lose time if medicine did not work out. And 
eventually they were the ones encouraging and motivating me to go to the states because you obviously us is the best place to pursue a liberal arts education and and funny story obviously medicine was not what i ended up doing i started studied econ as a major with minors in business and entrepreneurship they still don't know the specifics of vc uh, but i think they are happy because i'm happy doing this it's a great point that they and i can obviously second that having gone to the whole undergrad program back home in India it can be quite challenging and at the same time monotonous but it looks like you've been doing fairly well since you've uh, made the decision to move to the west i actually wanted to bring up a very interesting trend that we noticed within the bestma portfolio you guys have invested across the spectrum and have had a great portfolio over the years you're constantly hearing and speaking to people internally about the deals that they're leading Now I want to put you on the spot and ask you what have you learned both from your personal experience as well as from your colleagues about evaluating startups across different sectors do you take a similar approach are you looking at it completely differently and share some of the insights that you have perhaps gathered over the time that you've been at Basma about what it takes to invest across the spectrum because Jantan and I can both perhaps towards the end add our insights as well about what it means to be agnostic when it comes to investing. So let me walk you through how Besma is structured, which will throw some light on how we we invest across the sector. So Besma has twenty one investing partners, and we have a decentralized structure. What that means is that each partner decides on the areas they are passionate about, and build theses or which we call internally roadmaps on those specific areas. So as a junior investor. still like myself you are pretty much free to go and align yourself with different partners and work on the roadmaps they're working obviously it's not humanly possible to work on 21 different roadmaps so you sort of narrow that down and see which are the spaces you like so although the firm is agnostic in nature because 21 partners covered 21 different fields which is pretty much the entire spectrum of venture investing i have aligned myself as jonathan alluded early on to the fintech roadmap as well as um, enterprise saas and within enterprise saas again it's pretty broad so i've aligned myself with vertical saas as well as b2b marketplaces which is not saas but it's sort of a b2b motion in that sense and obviously the stuff that you see in a fintech company whether it's an infrastructure fintech company or a consumer fintech company is different from what you see at the enterprise saas level and obviously the insights have been different let me condense both of them and come up with with few points that are unique to both of these fields so obviously we are looking for unique distribution hooks companies that can sell to to certain types of people without spending a lot of money within consumer we are looking for specific growth hacks which we internally call the free lunch for example if you look at robinhood for us it's free to trade on robinhood but actually there's someone paying for that or look at banks the the ogs in consumer finance the free lunch for them was let's allow people to deposit money for free and then sort of invest that money and lend that money at a higher margin to different entities so we're looking for unique distribution hooks whether it's an enterprise saas whether it's in fintech we're looking for metrics like how quickly is the payback coming if you're spending a dollar in sales and marketing how quickly are you recouping that and more metrics on those lines but at the same time we're also looking at stellar teams teams which have had great experiences building these products that are actually empathetic with the problems they're solving and are coming at it from a from a scrappy perspective something they've built by themselves they're bootstrapping something they have great traction before raising money or they've done something unique with the product in terms of attracting a certain subset of users who they want to target but yeah those are the fields i'm i'm focusing on that's the way best my structured and i try to condense that but if you want we can we can dive into specific fields even more and talk about them Most interesting, you bring up the fintech sector, and one of the things that we observed during 2020, the year of the pandemic, 
was that the fintech sector in the second quarter of, of the year definitely suffered a little bit, but funding levels recovered quite rapidly with some large and later funding rounds driving the market. However, you have seen the you've seen the fact that fintech is such a large space. It's so difficult for you to really nail down and say you're you're really only seeing sectors, sector growth within fintech in in perhaps say decentralized finance or just in the crypto space or in the lending space and so on and so forth. Now, speaking about your own thesis, when you're sitting and developing a thesis internally at Basima for fintech, how do you take a look at the sectors within fintech that you want to invest, <clears throat> be investing into? Do you take into account where the fund wants to invest? You want to take into account the trends within the industry? Or do you also perhaps put in a little bit of your own personal interest and expertise coming to understand what, what within the whole fintech space that you want to be putting your money and bets on? So within fintech, I think it's a combination of everything. It's where the market's heading, what are the key trends we're seeing, where are we personally interested in investing? But I can walk you through how we have been thinking about fintech off late. So obviously we know the we want of consumer fintech companies like Pediment, Acons have all have all been here for the last 10 years. Some some of them have gone public, some of them are on the verge of going public. And we did invest in that trend a little bit with companies like SOPA, United Capital as well as Betterman, targeting consumers. And, and we call them the V1 of, of consumer finance. But quickly, we realized that these companies were spending a lot of money on, on distribution and acquiring users. And that wasn't scalable beyond a certain point. And at the same time, we realized that companies like these were also spending a lot of money building out core infrastructure themselves, whether it's payment processing, whether it's virtual card issuance, whether it's KYC AML, all of these things were being done in-house by all of these companies, which again, put a lot of pressure on the cost basis that these companies were operating on and eventually the margins that they would see at scale. So we realized that there will be a trend where a lot of infrastructure players will come in and provide these services or are the best of breed services through an API, through infrastructure where consumer companies could just plug these services in with a few clicks um, and not build all of this infrastructure themselves. And that was the trend we invested in between say 2014 and 2020. And, and we continue to do so, but the core of that stack was built within those seven to eight years, starting with Stripe and payment processing. We invested in companies like Lithic Privacy, which is in virtual card issuance. We invested in companies like Alloy API, which is doing KYC AML. And the thesis now is that all of this best of breed infrastructure has been built. If you are a consumer fintech entrepreneur, you can use these best of breed solutions and spin up a company within a few months with a lot less employees you need. For example, there's a company called HM Bradley. Within the first year, they had $5 million in deposits, a credit card product, a debit card product with less than 20 full-time employees because they had used best of breed APIs and partners to achieve this. So the trend now is that, hey, all of the infrastructure is here. It's ready. It's ready to be used. And now is the time to invest in consumer fintech because we can build consumer fintech companies, I would say, in a more cost-efficient manner on the infrastructure level. And the innovation will come at the product level and at the distribution level. And that's where we're actually focusing attention when we think of consumer fintech. That's interesting. We've also spent a little bit of time exploring things like embedded finance, embedded lending, looking at companies like Modern Bank and Rehive who are providing APIs to allow SMBs and other enterprises to basically embed their own 
banking services and products into their own stack. And it's definitely fascinating. Uh, and it's interesting to hear you say that this sector has matured quite a bit. You know, there are a lot of companies in this space now. I know that the last YC Battery looked at, there were at least four or five companies operating in this space and they all raised crazy valuations. So interesting to see how far consumer finance has come over the years. I'm curious on that same topic, well, not sure whether this is considered exclusively consumer finance or not though, but the emergence of blockchain applications in fintech Akash mentioned before, decentralized finance, people are talking about the volatility of Bitcoin all the time. People are talking about the rise of Dogecoin uh, spurred on by people like Mark Cuban and and Elon Musk and and their support backing this. And a lot of retail investors are flocking to try to understand what cryptocurrency is and how blockchain can be applied to other aspects of their lives as well. Curious about your thoughts on everything happening here, the dramatic growth in interest and investment in the space. Yeah, and and I like the way you mentioned blockchain and not crypto because I think it's it's blockchain that's where the innovation is going to happen. I think crypto is a subset of blockchain, as everyone knows. Blockchain is the technology, um, and crypto is part of that technology. But it's a good point you raise, and we have been dabbling with that question for quite some time. The question for us when crypto was coming up, when blockchain was coming up, is do we invest in companies that are building platforms on top of this or do we invest in the currency itself? So it's like, do you invest in a Coinbase or do you invest in Bitcoin? And we didn't know the answer to that question. Obviously, these have been monstrous outcomes, Bitcoin itself, but as well as Coinbase and other companies doing that. And I think the consumer part is maturing slightly where newer alternative asset classes are being developed through blockchain. There are companies that are going after NFTs. We have an undisclosed investment in that space. And we're looking at it from a pretty laser-focused lens, but also from an enterprise perspective. We have a portfolio company called Nidig, uh, which is in the treasury space for, for crypto. We've been looking at crypto companies, blockchain companies that are serving enterprises and institutional clients and how they can invest in crypto, reconcile crypto, send crypto, uh, more on those lines. So that's the way we've been thinking about it. But the question for us was, do we invest in crypto applications or do we invest in crypto itself? And I think both of those fields have merits to be invested in. And I think we have matured in our thinking as well. I mean, we have been investing across the stack now. We have a few undisclosed investments in the alternative asset space that are using blockchain. And we've been strongly looking at companies uh, that are serving the enterprise or institutional financial clients through the lens of crypto and blockchain. That's interesting. And you mentioned being able to buy and sell through blockchain applications too. So you've seen cash, seen credit cards, mobile wallets and payments, contactless payments, payments through apps. Now you're saying payments of cryptocurrencies for everyday items or for regular purchases now as well, or even enterprises being able to, to transact on blockchain, which is, you know, you see this incredible journey. What new innovative payment methods or options do you think we're going to see next? That's a good question. Before we think about payments for the consumer, I think payments for SMBs and enterprises is an untapped market. So we actually invested in a company called Milio, which is helping smaller businesses pay their vendors. We also have an undisclosed investment in a B2B2C payments company, which will help you pay you know, hospital bills with the click of one button. Usually this is a process where you need to write a check, mail the check to the to the concerned entity. And that's the way the payment's done. But think of a way where you can pull out your phone, you have a bill, either it's a utility bill that requires a check payment or it's a hospital bill that requires a check payment or some sort of bill that is archaic in nature where you are sending a check 
or like a money order or something, and you can pay that but with a type of a button. So I think before we think about how consumers will be paying, because you know my imagination will will just take me to different places there, and and we can keep that for a different day. I think the real opportunity for us as fintech investors is figuring out different payment options for the SMBs, for the enterprise, and also how to integrate with different ERP providers. So a lot of enterprises have thousands of vendors; they're paying every day. Usually, that's a manual process. You have your ERP like a NetSuite, where you have you know a list of vendors, how much they need to be paid, but then you're going into another window opening up your treasury bank account with like a Wells Fargo, for example, plugging in manually the bank account information of thousands of vendors you have. There are literally 10 people who do this every day. Um, and no plaid-like solution exists in this market where like a NetSuite or like an intact can be connected to your treasury bank account and things can be seamless. So I think that's where the near-term low-hanging fruit opportunity is. And, and we, are, we are laser-focused on investing in those spaces. I like that. There's a lot of different ways to transact, both for enterprise and consumer. It's very fractured. There's so many different apps and systems and ERPs and so many different ways money flows in and out of an organization and trying to consolidate that all together, put it all together on a single platform or create APIs or build on top of SDKs that allow you to more seamlessly you know, work together with various banking infrastructures and such. Definitely an area I'm really excited to see innovation happening in. Before we move off the topic of, of fintech. I got to ask you, you've seen the entire Robinhood and, and GameStop and the, the whole meme stock phenomenon. So wondering if if you had any hot takes on this topic. Yeah. So my first hot take is that all of these meme stocks are highly speculative and I'd never invest in them. But the second hot take is that, as I mentioned earlier on, a lot of companies like Robinhood have been using the free lunch as a distribution hook, which is bring consumers on by giving them something for free, but actually someone else pays for it, which is, you know, Robinhood has payment for order flow, which is hedge funds like Citadel paying them uh, to provide them with the order flow. One of the key things we at Bessemer have been tracking is that we saw that consumers spend about $640 a year on digital subscriptions, whether it's Wi-Fi at home, Netflix, TV service, internet service. And in that average list, there is no financial services product. Can you imagine that? We pay for literally everything, a subscription for medicines, a subscription for protein powder, a subscription for Prime, a subscription for Netflix. But we can't think of a single subscription that we consistently pay for within the financial services stack. So in the next hot take is that there will be services that we will pay for, like Robinhood that we pay for. And, and we are more comfortable paying for that because we know our data is not being shared. It's more ethical. And I think that's the next hot take where all of these services will be subscription-based, which will put the pressure off them to do things that piss people off. Yeah, that, yeah. I've been dying to ask this question ever since Bessemer released all of their memos. Have you guys continued to keep your memos as short as they were, even for like later stage investments? Because that really blows my mind. Yeah, I think memo is on an average range anywhere between five to eight pages along, along with the appendices and, and more on those lines. But the goal for us is to keep it as succinct as possible, get to the point, just tell people what you're thinking, and hopefully they understand that. So we try to be extremely to the point with our memos, and you probably have read the memos on the website, and that's what we strive to do. It's like, cut to the point, hopefully people understand that, and, and move on. How do you get your thoughts across, though? I mean, these are some of the sectors might be sectors that are very nascent, very new, very difficult for some internal people to understand. How much time do you end up spending from a diligence perspective on trying to collate all the information. I get that the diligence memos might be succinct, but then educating everybody on the entire sector where the opportunity lies 
and more importantly where's the exits as well is something that probably takes a little bit more digging into so how are you spending your time from an internal perspective you personally in trying to educate your teammates partners who are actually going to be calling the shots of these deals so at best more someone sources a company like it's myself i probably will own the life cycle of that company talking to the company introducing the company to to partners here doing the diligence proving hypotheses right and then presenting the company to the entire partnership so throughout the process as you probably know the goal is to prove or disprove your hypotheses right if you meet a company and you say this is an interesting company you're doing diligence to prove that hypothesis i mean as part of that process we plug in partners we have customer calls uh, where we get one on one feedback about the product we have calls with team members other than the founding team we do reference calls with you know people who have worked with the founders and we're crunching numbers obviously everyone does that but eventually we have a discussion at partnership where we present the memo and everyone's free to ask us questions so we being the deal team we are responsible to answer all of those questions and the team comes and presents to us so if you're investing in a company we'll bring in the team the team will present to the entire partnership there'll be people who ask the team questions but once the team leaves it's our responsibility to get all questions answered and if they're pending topics of diligence because people can plug in people have had more experience than us in certain areas and they'll tell us hey this is a topic of diligence you guys should cover and then we'll go so obviously the memos are short and sweet but the discussion on them is is pretty long and and collaborative as well as comprehensive was there anything that stood out to you personally when you took a look at it first time is there a favorite for you that kind of has paved the path and become a playbook for you personally in terms of investing not a playbook per se but a fun fact is we always underestimate the ludicrous like case for any company like i think i don't remember the exact numbers for the shopify case but the home run case was like 10x below what shopify ended up doing i mean i think it's 100x below now but even when shopify ipo or when it was doing well i think the the home run case was way underestimated and i think that's a good thing it's not always right to sort of inflate expectations when you're investing in a company obviously you have to protect the downside and and have risk adjusted outcomes table there so i think for all of our home runs and most successful investments we have underestimated the potential of that company by several multiples so given the fact that you're from india you understand the markets back home have you been looking at what's been happening across the fintech sectors back home and has that caught your attention in terms of investing into say up and coming trends uh, such as neo banks for that matter the lending space in india has actually grown over the last 36 months or so and more importantly you've got niches within niches within the fintech as well where you today see a lot of fintech solutions specifically directed towards um people within the ages of 11 to 18 or even directed towards women as such have these caught your attention and what do you what is your take on that Yeah of course i mean i've been following these companies closely but again as i mentioned these still are v1 consumer companies in india and so our thesis still remains the same that we really want to invest in infrastructure in india which will make the next generation of consumer companies much more easy to develop and and cheaper to develop so on the same lines we've invested in a company called perfuse in india actually which is like a digital account aggregation it's not it's not like the plaid of india because it does many more things than plaid because the banking system in india is extremely different from the banking system in america but the same thesis applies in india as well let's let's invest in infrastructure now so that the next wave of companies can have a greater distribution a better product at a fraction of the cost that today's companies are seeing but one thing that sort of scares me is that are these markets winner take all markets for example 
if a company like Robinhood is being built, there's a company called Crow in India, even if they're building infrastructure themselves, if they acquire a large user base, will that user base ever churn? And that's the question we're trying to grapple with. Although these companies are building infrastructure themselves, they're spending a lot of money on distribution. The CAC and stuff is really, really high at the beginning. If it's a winner take, take all market, probably the time is now to invest because the margins can eventually smoothen out over time. The company can figure out the operational challenges. And that's an answer I don't have. But our hope is that even if we invest in infrastructure players today, there'll be a next wave of consumer companies that can be built, that come up with an innovation distribution hook, come up with some sort of innovative product, actually focusing on certain demographics more. For example, the V1 in any country goes broad, like Robinhood goes after everyone. But now we have public that's going after a certain subsect of people. So I think the next wave obviously focuses in on different things. And our belief is that if we invest in infrastructure now, that next can be even more successful from a unit economics perspective. So I personally have not had much experience with India. I have not been to India before either. So could you take a step back and walk me through what the fintech infrastructure looks like for India right now? From what I understand, a lot of transactions happening on apps like WhatsApp. Uh, a lot of cash is still being used in most places in India. And so that's why V1 technologies are just now starting to make their way into India's fintech landscape. But there's a humongous population there, so much opportunity. So I'm wondering, why is India's infrastructure modernizing more slowly than they have the potential to do? On the consumer side, I think things have matured really well because we have digital wallets, we have online payment options, and it's pretty much the same thing you would see in the US. I think the real opportunity is within B2B payments. You have so many of these small vendors that actually function on cash and carry and even indirect credit of sorts. So Akash probably might know, like you have a local store that you go to and this store will extend you credit for like one month by writing some information in a book. So it's pen and paper in a book, which is actually a credit system in India. It's not formalized. There's no computer, there's no modeling, there's nothing, which essentially is like India's version of buy now, pay later. So I think a lot of that will be formalized through technology. A lot of that will have rails built to connect to banks. Uh, a lot of that will move away from cash. And we're seeing payment solutions being built for these things. But on the app side, the apps can't be built if there are no rails to connect it to the core banking systems. So in those lines, we actually invest in a company called Perfuos, as I mentioned, which is building those rails. They've been building them initially for consumer companies, but eventually will scale down to vendors where B2B payments can be made, where cash can be removed from the equation where the buy now, pay later for B2B vendors can be more formalized with applications and technology, which can be modeled out even well and sort of predict your loss ratios and, and stuff like that. So I think the real opportunity is within B2B payments in India and in formalizing that across different sectors. So it's not like one B2B payments application is going to do it for India. There's so many different fields, like being farmers, for example, being small businesses, for example, transportation vendors, so on and so forth. And I think there'll be verticalized payment options for each one of them because the nuances required for them or the nuances of each field are so high that there won't be one horizontal player that can do it for the entire country. Interesting. You mentioned this phrase verticalized a few times now. And earlier when you're doing your introduction, you said you do a lot of enterprise SaaS, but focusing a lot more on verticalized enterprise SaaS. So what exactly does that mean? And specifically, which verticals within enterprise SaaS are you really most interested in why? Or, you know, is it closely tied to fintech as well? Yeah. So 
at the broad level vertical means software for specific industries so it can be an industry like construction it can be an industry like transportation it can be an industry like food so i think that's what i mean when i say verticalized saas or vertical payments it's payments or software for specific industries and i'm a big fan of vertical saas i mean besma has had a great success in this field we have a strong vertical saas portfolio companies like procore uh, companies like toast which is a restaurant pos our first vertical saas success was a company called mindbody which was selling software to yoga studios actually went public and and we've had more successes on those lines i like vertical saas for multiple reasons i think it's easy to identify competition in a verticalized market who are the key players and typically these markets are untapped uh, you have a few incumbents that are horizontal that are trying to do a lot of different things and actually don't take into account the nuances of each industry for example we have industry specific software for the accounting industry we have industry specific software for the law industry and the workflows of all of these industries are so specific that one horizontal player won't do the job to suffice the needs of multiple different industries to one product and hence i like focusing on vertical saas where you understand the nuances and needs of a certain user type and you then go and see companies doing that but the question in those markets is of tam right because obviously the tam of these verticals is going to be smaller than a horizontal tam across different verticals and the question becomes can this specific company capture a significant enough market share where the outcome becomes big so for example the tam for software for accounting professionals might be for example say 2 billion and if you want a 300 million arr company you have to have conviction that this company can reach that market share where they can reach to about 300 million arr a year and you're solving for those things but at the same time you're solving for whether the product takes into account all the nuances and needs of that specific user type which believe me is really really specific and they need really really specific things to help their workflow That makes a lot of sense. So you take any enterprise SaaS solution in the cloud, the cloud infrastructure space, and the first thing you think about is, okay, well, can Google or Salesforce or someone else who's a giant incumbent in this space, who's got billions, sometimes even trillions in market cap, could they feasibly come into the market and build this themselves, or would they even want to? Is the real question. and oftentimes you struggle with that question you know like they have the resources they have the energy and the time they have the 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 expertise in order to come in and build very vertically integrated saas solutions in specific areas but they choose not to they choose to to keep a broader platform that's more agnostic to different sectors and industries and that's where the opportunity comes in is is if folks who are using these broader agnostic platforms start having more specific customizations that they need that are not as easy to build in or require a a specific kind of a team to support them that has a a very particular background we see and, that and this, just want to yeah. make one point there like when you think of these bigger players like a salesforce for example they will always be the system of record like no one's going to go away from a salesforce crm but the opportunity for vertical saas players is to build a system of action on top of the system of records the system of records will always be horizontal they'll be supporting clients with within different verticals but there'll be specific systems of action which are workflow tools payment tools on top of these systems of record to do those nuanced things within those specific verticals yes that makes a lot of sense too so how should verticalized saas companies think about distribution and target customers. You you mentioned a lot of these folks start in niche markets, build dedicated user bases, are operating in areas that maybe have small TAMs initially but are growing TAMs. 
and then eventually start moving on and moving forward and, and eating market share from some of the incumbent players or just marking their own path in the industry. And so how should companies think about these strategies? The goal for companies targeting vertical SaaS clients should be trying to build a repeatable playbook because you know the customer really well. You know who the customer is because there's specific customers within that vertical. You know what the pain points are. Typically what happens in horizontal plays is that the pain points of specific customers are different and the product is broad enough to meet all of those pain points. So the cell is not that repeatable because you're adjusting that cell for every different client. But within vertical SaaS, the cell is pretty much the same. The playbook is the same and it all boils down to, can you build a repeatable engine uh, to go and bring these clients in, in sort of a robotic way, if that makes sense. And that should be the goal for a top-down go-to-market. But over the years, we're also seeing product-led growth motions, bottoms-up motions, and that boils down to the product itself. You know, Can you build a product with all of the integrations that can be deployed within a few clicks? And if you can, and if the product allows you to do so, and if the problem that you're solving allows you to do so, by all means, you should go out and build a, a bottoms-up sort of go-to-market product. And in that case, product-led growth becomes important. Having a good customer support team becomes important. And we've also seen companies that have both these motions where they go into specific teams with a bottoms up motion where specific teams that have specific pain points are targeted through SEO or, or targeted to different methods and then deploy within that team with a few clicks. And then the go-to-market team actually reaches out to the company and says, hey, this is one team that's been using the product. They've seen great success within the product. They're liking the product. Would you like to expand and, and include other teams to use this product as, as well. I and mean, that's also a really successful strategy where eventually a top-down sale will be required to get to a certain scale within that company, but you enter that company through a bottoms-up motion and then eventually expand. Wise words indeed. You know, I hope any entrepreneur who wants to build a verticalized SaaS solution is listening to this and, and taking this in. So Aditya, we've, we've only got a couple minutes left. So I wanted to take a step back and, and change gears a little bit, but I was reading some of your blog posts and I noticed in one of your blog posts, you kept talking about how BVP has really provided a lot of learning opportunities for you and a lot of exposure to junior team members. And you touched on that with the entire picture that you painted with the operating partners and the deal flow teams coming in and presenting to everyone and people having an open forum to ask questions. And that's, that's pretty rare to see. What's the biggest, most important learning you've taken away so far from either your role specifically here at BVP or the exposure that you've gotten from participating in things like partnership meetings? So I think of my role at BVP as University 2.0 because every day I'm learning something new. I'm meeting on an average two new founders a day who are building something completely different, having different business models. So I think it's a job that allows me to learn on a daily basis. And that's part one, which is like external learning because you're meeting people outside the company. The biggest learning comes from your peers when partners or your peers are presenting companies, they're bringing companies to partnership and the questions they're asking becomes really important. But I think Jonathan, you and I spoke about this. The question set that you ask a founder in different industries is different. The question set you ask a, a fintech founder is different. The question set you ask a vertical SaaS founder is different. And asking the right questions will get you to the truth really quickly and will either disprove or prove a hypothesis. And I think the biggest learning has been asking the right questions to the right people. Asking a FinTech founder a vertical SaaS question wouldn't yield you much results because you're not gonna get to the answer you're looking for, which will not help you uh, prove or disprove your hypothesis. So I think internally, I have developed the sense of asking great questions and getting to the truth uh, really quickly.
Yes, distilling a lot of information down to the most important points for a discussion is a huge learning and a great skill to have. And for us, a lot of the conversation around a specific investment opportunity usually revolves around risks. What are the biggest risks and what's the evidence here that these risks are not as significant as they seem or do the founders or the team have a plan to address these risks. And so being able to ask all the right questions to, to expose these risks and also to be able to really think through their plans and their potential actions to address these. I think you put it really well, education 2.0, university 2.0, VC is a constant learning journey. Uh, and I think we've all experienced that here as well. So on that note, Thanks so much for joining us on the Capitalist Adventures podcast today, DTR. This has been an absolute treat. I think a lot of folks who are interested in, in fintech and, and SaaS have a lot to learn from your insights. And it's been great getting the inside scoop uh, on how Bessemer operates as well. So before we jump off, Aditya, how can our listeners connect with you? Yeah, Jonathan and Akash, thanks for having me. And I'm at e Nidmarthy at bvp.com. My, my surname is, is pretty difficult to spell, but it's basically the first initial of my first name, my last name at bvp.com and, and happy to talk to your listeners and interact with them. But thanks again for having me guys. It's been a pleasure sort of you guys picking my brain, but we'd love to pick your brain sometime as well. Yeah, whatever you're interested, let us know and we'd be more than happy to share some little things that we know about the industry with you. Of course, Jonathan has been extremely smart. You know, I, I respect him as an investor and he's taught me a lot throughout our interactions over the last one year, but would definitely love to pick your brain sometime as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the podcast again. It was a pleasure having you. And to all of our listeners, if you've enjoyed this episode, please go ahead and rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps others discover the show as well. See you on the next episode of The Capitalist Adventures. 